Many years before Isaiah wrote those words in chapter 47 of his book, um, wise words were penned, uh, recorded in the book of Proverbs that tell us this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. 150 years before it occurred, the prophet Isaiah wrote about the coming destruction of the ancient uh, empire of the Babylonians, the arrogant nation of Babylon. And as we've seen many times in our study of the book of Isaiah, um, there there are um, 66 chapters and so much is filled with uh, prophetic teaching. Uh, future events, future to Isaiah's own day. After all, he was a prophet of God. He talked about um, things that took place in his own day when the Assyrians were coming, and he warned his people of current events that were about to befall them. But Isaiah also prophesied about a Babylonian empire some 100, 150 years in the future the Babylonians who were going to bring ultimate destruction to Jerusalem, to Judah, and bring the people into captivity. But as we've seen in our study of Isaiah, he also talks about things that are 700 years beyond his life, the time of the first coming of Jesus, the Messiah, as he prophesied in his book. But not only that, we know from the study of his book that he also talks about things 2,700 years and beyond, future to our own day, a coming time when Jesus will return again, the Messiah will come again, and will set up his kingdom on earth and bring in the complete fulfillment of all that God has prophesied. I don't know if Isaiah fully understood all of those different mountain peaks of prophetic utterances, if he understood the, the valleys, the time frames in between them, probably not. When he spoke under inspiration of Scripture, he spoke these things with authority. But we look back and we can see the, the time frame and the history of all of it unfold. Isaiah 47 is a chapter that is spoken to the people of Babylon, spoken to a people some hundred and 20, 30, 40, 150 years beyond Isaiah's own day, the ancient Babylonians. And it's a prophecy where God forewarns them, Babylonian empire, you will fall. Your days are numbered. Your time is running out. And as we've seen in previous chapters like chapter 44 and chapter 45, Isaiah actually names the 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 person who's going to be coming to destroy them. Cyrus the Great of the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, was going to be raised up by God and come and defeat the Babylonians in order to set the, the, the captive people of Israel free. We read in chapter 47, verse 1, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. Or verse 5, sit silently, go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, and you will no more be called the queen of the kingdoms. Or over in 
Verse 9, these two things will come on you suddenly in one day, loss of children and widowhood. They will come on you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells. You felt secure in your wickedness and you said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you've said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. And evil will come upon you which you will not know how to charm away. A disaster will fall on you for which you cannot atone, and destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. 150 years. In fact, when Isaiah wrote those words, Babylon wasn't even a world power. It was the Assyrians. Babylon? Who who are they and where are they? And yet Isaiah, under divine inspiration, is prophesying a time when this empire will arise in their hubris. They will take the people of Israel, of Judah, captive in exile. But their demise would be sure, certain and sure. This is a prophecy not just meant for the Babylonians. They probably weren't going to read Isaiah. But it was meant for the Jewish people who were in exile. For 70 years, starting in 605 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar came and began the series of of exiles and taking the people and finally destroying in 586 B.C. Jerusalem and taking the remaining people off into captivity into Babylon. For 70 years, those people labored under the, uh, the, the mastery of the Babylonians. And in captivity, maybe they picked up somehow a copy of Isaiah 47 and read the words, the Babylonian destruction is coming. Quickly. In a day. And so the nation of Israel in captivity was to be encouraged. They were to find hope in these words. God would break the arrogant pride of the Babylonians. That's what chapter 47 is addressing. Well, then we come to chapter 48. And notice who chapter 48 is addressed to. Verse 1, hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel. God has a message for the Israelite people, the Jewish people, in captivity in Babylon, some 150 years from the time Isaiah is penning these words. And part of what Isaiah has to say are words of judgment to his own people. And yet part of what he has to say is a message of mercy and grace. Notice again verse 1 of chapter 48. Hear this, O house of Jacob, you who are named Israel, who came forth from the loins of Judah. It's, It's as if Isaiah wants to make no mistake who he's addressing. You of the house of Jacob, named Israel, of the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord. And now's maybe a good time to just remind us that in our translations, whenever you see the word Lord, all capital letters, L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the translator's indicator that he's referring to the personal name of God. I am that I am, Yahweh, or oftentimes said Jehovah. So whenever you see capital L-O-R-D, that's the personal covenantal name, Yahweh. I'm talking to you, Jacob, named Israel of the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of Jehovah, Yahweh, and invoke the God of Israel. 
And then he says, but not in truth or in righteousness. You've been faking it. Really, in reality, you're a bunch of hypocrites. Oh, Jacob, oh, Israel, oh, Judah. You haven't been invoking the God, Jehovah, in truth, in righteousness. Look at verse 4. I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead bronze. In other words, you are a rebellious, hard-hearted, hard-headed people, stubborn as the day is long. Jump down to verse 8. You have not heard, and you have not known. Even from long ago, your ear has not been opened, because I knew that you would deal very treacherously, and you have been called a rebel from birth. God is going to judge them. He's going to bring discipline upon them. Look at verse 10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Again, about 150 years after Isaiah wrote this, there were the people, God's chosen people, in another land far hundreds of miles from their homeland of Israel. And they've been in exile because of their hard-hearted, stubborn hearts, stiff necks, rebellious, obstinate ways, their spiritual hard-heartedness. And God is saying, that's all happened because I'm chastening you. I'm putting you through and testing you in the furnace of affliction. But God is going to also speak words of hope in chapter 48, mingled in with this um, These words of of chastening and and discipline are words of hope. Look at verse 14. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him, and he shall carry out his good pleasures on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. Some of these verses are a little bit hard to translate, and some of our translations take little different nuances uh, differently, but I think he's referring to here this coming Cyrus, who he's already named in chapter 44, chapter 45. I love him. I've chosen him. I've set my um, elective love on this Cyrus, and I'm going to raise him up, And he's going to come and he's going to carry out my good pleasure on Babylon. And his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I'm going to deliver you. Look at verse 20. Go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans, and declare with the sound of joyful shouting, proclaim this, send it out to the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made the water flow out of the rock for them. He split the rock and water gushed forth from it. And these are almost um, uh, parallels with with the redemption of the Israelites out of Egypt. And the prophecy here is God's chosen people are going to be redeemed. God's going to raise up his servant, Cyrus, the Medo Persian Empire who will bring destruction against the Babylonians and will set the people free and they will return 
to their homeland of Israel with shouts of joyful singing that the Lord has redeemed us, the Lord has set us free. That's kind of the basic understanding of these two chapters. Chapter 47, here's what's coming down, Babylonians. Because of your arrogance, your pride, I'm going to destroy you. Here's what's going to happen, O Israel, my chosen people, chapter 48. You who are obstinate, you who deserve justice and judgment, I'm going to extend grace to you, and I'm going to be true to my promises and my covenant, and I'll set you free by a mighty hand. Now, what can we learn about God in chapters 47 and 48? And I want to mention a number of things this morning that I think are surfaced from uh, uh, these passages. First of all, this passage teaches us that God, Almighty God, is actively engaged in the affairs of human history. He is shaping them to his appointed purposes. God was raising up another empire that the world at the time Isaiah was writing had never heard of, the Persian power, to crush another world power that wasn't even on the scene hardly as Isaiah wrote this, the Babylonian power. God is sovereign over the affairs of the world. Just as in Isaiah's own time, he had raised up the Assyrian powers to do his bidding. Over and over again, Isaiah makes the point that God is the ruler of the nations and their destinies are ultimately in his hands. And we could take probably an hour talking about these things more thoroughly, knowing that God has also allowed the God of this world, he calls him in the New Testament, Satan, a measure of freedom to do his work, his evil, wicked purposes against the holy God for a time. And yet ultimately, behind the scenes, God is the sovereign controller of all the events of the world. Here's a copy of today's Washington Post I picked up. All sorts of things in here happening all around the world. Nothing in here surprises God. Nothing. Some things God directly ordains to take place. Some things He permits the God of this world to do His evil work. But God is ultimately the sovereign Lord of all history. And he is going to raise up Cyrus, he said, just as he has raised up leaders in our day and age. And that is to encourage us. You read a newspaper, you read the events that are going on, and maybe it's like, good night, does anybody know what's going on in this world? Who in the world elected these people or put them in power? The mess around the globe. And we are to take courage. God is moving all things according to his divine purposes. God is not in heaven biting his fingernails and wondering, why did they do that in Washington, D.C.? Related to that is another principle that I think is surfaced from these passages, and that is that pride 
goes before the fall. God is going to one day make it clear to all the nations who has been in charge all along. You go back to chapter 47 and verse 8. Now then, hear this, you central one, as he's writing to the Babylonians, who dwell securely, who says in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor, uh, nor know the loss of children. I am the captain of my ship. I'm the master of my own fate. Verse 9, but these two things shall come on you suddenly in one day, loss of children and widowhood, and they shall come on you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the, the great power of your spells. You felt secure in your wickedness, and you said, oh, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you said in your heart, I am, and there's no one besides me. Well, verse 11, evil will come on you, which you will not know how to charm away. And disaster will fall on you, which you cannot atone. And destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. We won't take the time to turn there, but a prophet 100 years after Isaiah wrote these words came on the scene. His name was Daniel. And you probably, if you grew up in Sunday school and remember the story in Daniel chapter 5, the amazing story of Belshazzar, the son of the great powerful Nebuchadnezzar, was now reigning. Belshazzar was having a party, a palace bash, eating and drinking, and even blaspheming God as he was um, defiling uh, the God of Israel. And then in the midst of the, the party and the drunkenness, he saw it. Remember the story? Mini, mini, tekel yufarsen. The handwriting on the wall with the strange words that no one knew. It was one of those moments where Belshazzar instantly, having been liquored up, sobered up. Who can interpret this? Well, there was this, this prophet long ago. Uh, he, 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 he had a hand in your father's kingdom. His name was Daniel. Bring him out. Call him out. And Daniel came. And Daniel interpreted the handwriting on the wall, and he said this, God has numbered your kingdom and put it to an end. You have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Your kingdom has been divided between the Medes and the Persians. And then Daniel chapter 5, verse 30 says, That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. These two things Isaiah wrote 150 years earlier, these two things shall come on you suddenly in one day loss of children and widowhood, and they shall come on you in full measure. You felt secure. You said in your heart, I am and there's no one besides me. Well, evil will come upon you. Destruction which you do not know will come suddenly. That very night, Belshazzar died. You know, one day, every ruler, every president, every king, every dictator, every world power 
will bow the knee before the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. We're reminded of this back in chapter 2 of Isaiah. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. But notice again, verse 10 of chapter 47. Isaiah said, And you felt secure in your wickedness, and you said, No one sees. Your wisdom and your knowledge have deluded you, for you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. funny thing about pride is that it can blind us. It can blind us to the fact that God sees all things. God knows all things. Nothing is hidden from Him. And what is done in secret, He knows. They can say in their heart, no one sees me. But God does. One of the humorous things about being a pastor for almost 40 years is that when people don't know you're a pastor, they will say the most, the darndest things sometimes. <laughs> to be with people who can swear like a sailor and turn the air blue and then find out, oh, you're a pastor. <laughs> you know, like, woohoo. Like, and, you know, it's always fun to say, look, God's hearing is a lot better than mine. <laughs> it's amazing how we can think sometimes that we can get away with things. In a lone room, a computer screen, an office at a, at a water fountain and a comment that is made, something that was consensual, and it's done in secret. No, it's not. What kind of a God do we think we have? As I've sung before from the pulpit, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful. There's a Father up above, and He's looking. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Be careful, little mouth, what you say. There's a Father up above, and He's looking down in love. So be careful. Secret sin is never secret. Here's the third thing from this passage. God blesses those who faithfully obey Him and we, He withholds blessings from those who don't. Go over to chapter 48 again, verse 17, and God says this, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, to, to be successful, who leads you in the way you should go. Verse 18, if only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being, and that's the word shalom, peace, then your well-being, your peace, would have been like a river. Your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand, verse 19. Your offspring like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. I, I could have blessed you. I could have blessed the socks off you. If only you'd paid attention to my commandments. God not only knows what will happen, but amazing thing about God, He knows 
what might have happened if we simply would have walked obediently before Him? What blessings have we or are we missing out on right now today? Because we're attempting to live our life in our own ways, in our own efforts, through our own strength, by our own divine designs. What are we missing out on because we are pridefully living our lives apart from His gracious provision and plan? Does God say to us today, if only, if only you'd obey my commandments, I'd pour out the blessings of heaven. I think of how God said it, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, when he walked this earth and shortly before he was crucified, as he looked out over Jerusalem, Matthew 23, verse 37, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children like a mother hen would, uh, mother uh, chicken would gather her hens, but you wouldn't. You would not. God is a sovereign God, but He allows us freedom to make our choices. Oh, if you would have only obeyed my commandments. Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give it to you in abundance and express the the fruit of the Spirit through you of love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and all the wonderful things. I'm for you. I'm not against you. I've got plans for you, plans of well-being, of shalom for you. And again, every day we get up and we make our choices. Will we live obediently before Him? Or will we kind of decide, I think I can figure out what's best for me. I will, I will do my, make my choices. I'll follow my path to well-being and shalom and wholeness and peace. And it ends up being a dead end every time. God blesses those who faithfully obey Him. Chapter 48 ends with that ominous verse 22 that says, there is no peace for the wicked, for those that go their own way. I want to give you my peace. I want to teach you to, it says, profit, verse 17, to learn what it means to to live a life of blessing. But you refuse. I think of in the New Testament how James put it this way in James chapter 4, but God gives a greater grace, and it says, therefore, God is opposed to the proud, but He will give grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, to when we say we're going to kind of figure out life and we're going to go our own way. And so what's the, res- uh, what's the solution? Well, submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And be miserable and mourn and weep. In other words, repent. Decide, you know, my way is not the right way. And let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He'll exalt you. Oh, if you only would have listened to me. There's another truth to share from these passages. A fourth one, and that is that God enlightens us about the future. 
in order to encourage us in the present. God enlightens us about the future so that we can be encouraged in the present. Last part of verse 6 of chapter 48. I proclaim to you new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. I'm going to reveal to you something that is about to come, says God. God graciously gave Israel a a glimpse of the future. He graciously gave Israel and us today a picture of what is yet to come. I've asked Don Denhartog, our pastor of biblical education, to just share a couple of thoughts related to the glorious value of biblical prophecy. Hi, everyone. My name is Don Denhartog, and I'm the pastor of biblical education here at Fellowship Bible Church. I was in Omaha, Nebraska for the last number of months. My daughter is seriously ill, and Patty and I have gone out there to assist them. And I remember one morning in particular as I was out in the car early in the morning letting the car warm up, ready to uh, do the errands again for another day, that I received a call. I answered it because seeing the caller ID, I knew there would be a very beneficial reason to answer this call. It came from a man here at Fellowship Bible Church, but a man who had lost his son a number of years back in a car accident. He understands the difficulty it is when you lose a loved one, especially a son or a daughter. And, and as we were going through this experience, and still are, I found his words to be very encouraging because as we talked, and we both had tears on the phone, yet as he shared, he shared the hope that he has. And what is that hope? It's a hope about what the Bible teaches about the future. And that hope is very real to him. That is not a hope that he uh, just learned something in a class that kind of tickles his ears and increases his fascination with uh, biblical knowledge. But it's a hope that he embraces every day. It's a hope that is very personal. And he learned of that hope in the scriptures. The Bible has devoted a great amount of material to the subject about the future. The book of Isaiah, as Mark has been leading the congregation in that study these last number of months, is filled with prophecy. Basically, there are three different categories of prophecy in Isaiah. Things that would be fulfilled soon, things that would be fulfilled later in the first coming of Jesus Christ, and things that are yet to be fulfilled. What's the purpose? First of all, it helps the people learn what is ahead, that they not be blindsided. It will give them perseverance. It will give them an understanding as to why the things that are going to happen are going to happen. But it also gives them hope, because within these prophecies are words of hope from God of what His purposes are and how He will fulfill His promises, that He is faithful and that His goal is to bring restoration to his people. What was true for the people in Isaiah's day is true for us. The more we understand the details of what God has outlined is going to take place in the future, the more it can give us endurance for the very difficult things that we face in life. It will not blindside us, and also we can be able to have a hope that is sure and a hope that is very personal. The details are many. 
God has devoted so much of the scriptures to study about the future. Through the Psalms, through the prophets and the New Testament, through the teachings of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, and of course, the book of Revelation. And studying the details of these various passages are for a very good purpose. Let me give you an analogy. Our family likes to go to the beach in the summer. But as those long winter months uh, are before us, we go online and we check out the house that we have reserved. We look at all the different rooms and the furniture and see pictures about the area surroundings and the opportunities and options we have for things to do. Knowing more details makes that vacation much more concrete. If we simply said to our kids, hey, we're going on a vacation and it'll be fun and it'll be good and you'll enjoy it, that's one thing, but to give them details, let them see the pictures, let them see the house that we're gonna be in, the rooms that they're gonna stay in, to see the beach, to see the, the various amenities, that makes it much more concrete and not ethereal. And I believe that's what God wants us to do as we examine what He has outlined for the future in great detail for us to understand. The people during Isaiah's day needed to know what's going to take place, why it's going to take place, and they needed to know God's intentions that could give them hope because of His faithful promises of restoration. And the same is true for us. In preparing for this presentation today, I was reminded of the very last chapter that the Apostle Paul wrote prior to his execution that we have in the Scriptures, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And in that context, he speaks of Demas, one of his missionary partners, who says, having loved this present world has left me. But then Paul speaks about himself, and just before he is about to leave this world, he says, my time of departure has come, and there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will not only give me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. As we study biblical prophecy, our love for his appearing increases, and our love for this present world decreases. And therefore, it is vital that Christians devote a great amount of time to the study of it, to the embracing of it, and it becomes very personal, especially during times of difficulty, because we can hope in a different way. Paul says we do sorrow when we lose loved ones. That is to be expected. Even Jesus sorrowed at the death of a friend. But he says we sorrow, but not like those who have no hope. We sorrow differently. And when he said that, he began to outline the very details of the first part of Jesus' return, what we often call the rapture. And with all of these details, he then says, comfort one another with these words. Biblical, biblical prophecy is not just a matter of biblical knowledge. Biblical prophecy becomes very personal and can be the very fuel by which we can endure life now as we have a future where the best is yet to come. One more, I think, principle from this passage that I want to share before we close. And this final truth is simply this. God extends grace in order that His name will be praised. If you look at, again, chapter 48, verse 9, it's written, For the sake of my name I delay my wrath, and for my praise I restrain it from you. In order, that, or in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, 
For my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give it to another. God is zealous for his own name. And he accomplishes his purposes in the world, whether it's judgment or whether it's extending grace for his own name's sake. The Apostle Paul put it this way, I think, in Ephesians chapter 1. He said, we have obtained an inheritance and have been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Or in chapter 2, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is doing all things because he's zealous for his name. If you're here this morning and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're going to heaven, not because of what you have done, but because you've put your trust in Christ and him alone, that you have received that good news message, that gospel message, that God so loved the world, he gave his son, and Jesus came into this world to take our sin and die in our place, be judged for us, and then to rise again on the third day to offer the free gift of eternal life to anyone who puts their faith in Christ and Christ alone. If you've done that, and if you haven't, why do it today? It's the most simple thing you could ever do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Accept that He is the only one who offers eternal life freely because He died and rose again. Have you received Him as your Savior? Trust in Him and Him alone. Believe, transfer your trust off of yourself onto Christ and Christ alone. And in that moment of faith, your sins are forgiven. You have a home in heaven assured. And if you've trusted Christ this morning, we will stand in glory, praising at the throne of our gracious God for one purpose, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Because God does all things for His name's sake. And when we stand before Him in the throne, and we are giving praises to Him, that's what we've been redeemed for. God is a gracious God. He will not strive with men forever. He also brings judgment. I pray that you know him as your personal Savior today. Our Father, we're thankful that you have communicated to us again your character, who you are. You have revealed yourself once more. You've, through this written prophetic scripture of 2,800 years ago, And thank you, Father, we can leave here today with confidence. You know what you're doing. You are the sovereign king. Help us to take spiritual inventory of our life. Search me, try me. Is there some prideful, arrogant, evil way within me, Father, that says, I can do this thing by myself. I can solve this dilemma on my own. Lord, that we can walk out of here with a deeper desire to trust an almighty God, a sovereign Lord, who brings about judgment but extends his mercy and grace to us for your own namesake. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are 
this incredible God that we can personally have a relationship with. Even this coming week, I pray, Father, we will walk with you humbly before you to honor you. You're worthy of it. And as we see the events of the world transpire this week, thank you that we can rest. You are in charge. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.